So um, before we begin, I want to show you a couple of cartoons. You, so some of you may remember the old Far Side uh, cartoon um, strip that used to be in the newspapers. Um, I want to show you a couple of cartoons. They're going to be small up here, and you won't, don't, don't even try to read the captions there. I've got a zoomed-in picture, but you can see there's a contrast, heaven and hell. So the first, the, the top, the heaven part, shows um, God uh, handing out harps. So the next picture, he says, welcome to heaven, here's your harp. And then the bottom picture, welcome to hell, here's your accordion. Okay. And the second picture is... Um, uh, different but similar. Um, so uh, it's a cartoon of a man sitting on a cloud. Uh, so and again, the the words are small, so it's zoomed in. Um, what the man is saying is, "I wish I'd brought a magazine." <laughs> and the reason I show you these is because, um, you know, I hate to say it. I hate to be the one to break it right here in church and everything. But heaven sounds boring. Doesn't heaven sound boring? The way that popular culture presents heaven, it just comes across as boring. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason that heaven sounds boring. And the reason is that you were not made for heaven. You were never designed to be in heaven. If we look back at the state of humanity in our innocence, if we read the first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis, what we see is that God made humanity out of the dust of the earth. We are made from the earth. And in fact, the Hebrew word Adam, the, the, what, what God called that first man, the Hebrew word Adam means earth or dirt. We are earthlings. And heaven is going to seem boring because we are not designed for heaven. But there's good news. The good news is that heaven is not our eternal destination. We will not spend eternity in heaven. Now, we may pass through heaven. If we die in the Lord today, then scripture tells us uh, we will be with the Lord in he- in paradise. So, we will spend some time in in well we'll spend some some stretch of eternity, I guess. I don't know time, but we will spend a while in heaven. But that's not where we will spend eternity. Heaven is is a place for life after death. But to borrow the the language of um, N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright um, is a bishop of the Anglican Church in England, and he wrote this book, um, among many others, but I got through this one, um, Surprised by Hope, um, by N.T. Wright, and he talks about how life after death, life on a cloud somewhere with a harp and a halo, is a, a stereotype that is that is incomplete. It is life after death, but... Scripture teaches that there is something beyond that. There is life after life after death. So the good news of Scripture is that if heaven, if you've ever looked at a cartoon like that and laughed, you know, I wonder if there will be magazines in heaven. If you've ever looked at a cartoon like that, the answer for us is it really doesn't matter because that's not where we're destined to spend eternity. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at... um, uh, one of the one of the several places where Scripture talks about that, and uh, uh, last week we were in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, and what we saw in 19 is that Jesus shows up on his white horse, and that's it. That's curtains for the beast and his allies. And in chapter 20, they get their punishment, and it's actually surprisingly complicated because they're thrown into the bottomless pit. 
and then after a while, they're let out, and then they go into the lake of, of fire, and it's actually pretty complicated, and we could spend a lot of time trying to unpack that, but I'm not going to because this is a tour. It is not a relocation. I told you at the beginning... I told you at the beginning of our series that I'm not going to be that pastor. I'm, I'm, I have up until now been the pastor who never preaches on Revelation. And now I've, I can say I'm not that pastor. But I also don't want to be that pastor, the one who has a 200-part series on Revelation beginning next week. So um, I'm not going to be that pastor either. So we're going to jump over chapter 20 and all the interesting things that happen with the abyss and the lake of fire and all that stuff. And we're going to get to the good part. So we're going to start in on chapter 21. So John says, Then then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. Now when we hear language like that, I think pop culture conditions us to think that the earth is no more, that we have no choice but to crash on some angel's cloud because there's no place left here for us to be. But that's not what John means. The word new can mean, can mean, uh, utterly replaced. It can mean, uh, you, you, you got a new car, you got rid of the old car. It can mean that. But it can also mean renewed. We got a new kitchen. Okay? It doesn't mean that, you know, the old one was picked up and carried off. Um, it meant that we took our old kitchen and we replaced, uh, we replaced it, we restored it, we refurbished it, we rehabilitated it, we renewed it. And if we're talking about people or things that are alive, we might even say that it had a rebirth. And this is the language we see characteristically throughout Scripture. We see the word new doesn't mean replaced. It means reborn. When Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation, he doesn't mean, you know, you're gone wherever you went, and now there's, you know, this uh, uh, new thing there that is pretending to be you. He means you have been Reborn. This is the language we see characteristically throughout Scripture. So, um, so John says, I saw a new heaven, a renewed heaven, and a renewed earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. Now, sometimes in Scripture we do see language that talks about um, the earth being consumed in fire. But the language that's being used there is not one of destruction, but one of refinement. So if we go to Second Peter 3, for example... Uh, Peter has this kind of terrifying language there talking about uh, things will be burnt up. But he, what he's saying is that all of the impurities will be burnt away. And what is left is that is that pure alloy that is what God is seeking. So so we need to be careful as we read the, the, the descriptions in, in Scripture. We need to be thinking, is this talking truly about destruction or is it talking about something being um, remade, rehabilitated? So he says, the sea was gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. For us, you know, the new Jerusalem, he's about to, John is about to spend a long time explaining what all that means. He's going to tell us its dimensions, how it's got walls of jasper and they're 200 feet thick and the the 12 gates and each one is made from a single pearl and the streets are gold all that language we think of about you know heaven having streets of gold comes from the passage that we're not actually going to look at because John kind of goes into the details at some length and you can read that yourself but I want to focus kind of stand back instead of looking at the streets of gold I want to stand back and say what does it mean that there's a new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven 
in the Jewish mind, Jerusalem was the intersection of heaven and earth. It's the point of contact between heaven and earth. And what he's saying is it's about to get a lot closer and a lot more real. That the Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven will actually be palpable. It will be in your face. That you will actually experience that heaven right up close and personal. And that's, in fact, what he goes on to say. He says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Remember a couple of uh, uh, weeks ago, we looked at chapter 7, where it speaks of the martyrs, and it says that God will provide them shelter. God has pitched a tent that that maybe they are in a cloud, I don't know, it doesn't say, um, but they're with the Lord now in paradise. God is taking care of them. They're sheltered by God. He's, he's pitched a tent and invited them into it. But this turns that around. It says, now God is going to pitch a tent on earth. God is going to make his home among us. He's echoing the language that we hear in the beginning chapter of the book of John, the the gospel of John. He says, God became flesh and dwelt among them. God made his tent among them. And that's going to happen in the new heaven and the new earth. And what will he do there? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. You know, and again, this speaks to the idea not of totally new, totally replaced, but something that has been renewed or transformed. If you think of, if you think of a funeral, when we have a funeral, we typically remember the person. Um, we spend some time celebrating the, the, the gift that that person's life was for us. And the goal of the funeral is not to forget that that person ever existed. We're not looking forward to the new person that they will be in heaven because we didn't like this one and we want to forget them. We actually say that this person, like us, was was a mix that that they were they were good and bad and we spend some time in a funeral celebrating what was good and we anticipate the rebirth that when we know them in the afterlife when we know them in the resurrection we will see nothing but good because God will have wiped away all the tears he doesn't say we will wipe God will wipe away the memory that if there are things that have hurt us uh, if there are experiences in our life that were formative, that, that are part of who we are, but that hurt. God's not going to get rid of that. You know, you know, I, you know, I'm going to erase you like a, like a thumb drive or something. God is not going to wipe away us, but he will wipe away the pain. He's going to give us a different perspective that lets us see how in the midst of evil, in the midst of heartache and suffering, in the midst of death and tragedy, God was at work and God began to redeem those tragedies. But more than that, he promises that they will come to an end. He's not just telling us, this is, this is, you know, now that you have this better perspective, you can get through the next one. He's saying, and that's it. There will be no more death or sorrow or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He doesn't say, I'm making new everything. He says, I'm making everything new. I am renewing everything that is. And then there's this long passage with all the details, the sapphires and the chrysolites and so forth. Um, but he concludes this section by talking about how God will give to all who are thirsty, I will give to drink freely from the springs of the water of life. 
And then there's the lengthy description of this new Jerusalem. And then in chapter 22, he picks up right there. He says, the angel showed me a river with the water of life. Now focusing not just on the spring of the water of life, but the river that flows from it. That not only can we drink freely from this uh, uh, spring of the water of life, but the river has effects that, that go on forward. That it actually irrigates the tree of life. The tree of life. This is the first appearance in the Bible of the tree of life since chapter 3 of the Bible. Since chapter 3 of the first book in Genesis, we read about the tree of life, and God's purpose there is to block our access to it. We heard that earlier in our worship service today. God has precluded us from accessing the, the tree of life, and now the river of the water of life irrigates the tree of life, and it bears fruit every month. Yesterday I was walking down the road and I came across some, some wild raspberries uh, alongside the road and I plucked a couple and I was thinking to myself, it's a shame we're about, you know, they're, they're, they're here ready to eat, but I'm traveling and so it would be nice if they're here in September, but they won't be um, because that's the way fruit is. Some of you go blueberry picking, you know they're not going to be there in October. But this fruit is always in season. The fruit of the tree of life is always in season. The language that John is using is he's telling us that God will roll back everything that has gone wrong. God will undo all the evil that has corrupted the world since God first made it. The language he's using is the language that describes Eden. So he talked about the river of life. He talks about the tree of life. He says there will be no curse if the world has fallen from its state of grace That will no longer be true. There will be no curse. And then he says this this little bit here. He says, they will see his face. They will see his face. In Eden, remember, God went walking through the garden in the cool of the evening. And Adam and Eve, they ran and hid from God. And since then, no one has seen God's face. Scripture says that Moses would meet with God in the tent of meeting and the effect was so great that it made Moses' face shine. But Moses couldn't see God's face. And one time he asked God, let me see your glory. And God said, I will have my glory pass by you, but I will hide you in the cleft in the rock because you cannot look at my face and live. And the picture that John is painting here is one where we have unmediated direct access, not to the back of God, but to his front. We can see God face to face. We can have the access we had only in Eden. And then this this weird thing here, he says, his name will be written on their foreheads. You know, sometimes, maybe you don't do this, so I'm going to confess a little bit. Sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I'll come come to a passage and I'll say, oh, a genealogy. And I'll just kind of read it super quick, right? You know, 11 columns in about 11 seconds. And I'll just kind of skim through them. Or maybe it's a description of the temple, you know, where it goes on for four chapters and it says, you know, right? And I might just kind of read that super quick too. There's a, there's a passage in scripture that is kind of like that and it describes the gear that the high priest wears. It talks about the turban and this ephod that's covered with the different precious stones and all the robes and what color they are and what kind of uh, mohair they're made out of and all kinds of stuff like that. But in the middle of that, there's just, just this reference. It says he has kind of dangling down from the turban. He's got a little plate over his forehead that has the name of God on it. Because 
in Jewish religion, in, in, in the worship of the people of God, only one person could have the name of God written on their forehead, and it was the high priest. He wore it when he went into the most holy place, the sanctum sanctorum. He went into the inner sanctum where he could actually present the offerings to God once a year. And he wore the name of God on his forehead. But John tells us, in this restored Eden, we will all be high priests. We will all have the name of God on our forehead. Every one of us can go in directly to the presence of God and see him face to face. And he says, There will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun. The Lord God will shine on them, and they will sit in their clouds with their harps and their halos forever and ever. (laughs) No. No, it doesn't actually say that, does it? It says they will reign. They will reign. Again, the language of Genesis, God is undoing all the effects of the curse. What was the first thing that we read about the humans that God created? He made the the fish and the seas and the, the moon and the stars. He made everything and he said it was good. And then he made the humans and he said it was very good. And he gave them dominion. He let them reign over the earth. And John says that state of grace, people who have the capability and the authority to truly reign over the earth again, to do it well in God's name, to reign with God, that even that will be restored. We are called to be royal priests, Peter tells us. We are a royal priesthood. We have the name on our forehead and we reign with God. See, what Scripture promises is not a harp and a halo sitting on a cloud wondering if there's any magazines you might use to pass the time. Scripture says that Eden will be restored. That there is work to be done that God is calling us to. Whatever it was his original intentions were, we don't know. We've lost sight of that. But we will regain that picture. We will reign over all creation. This is what Jesus talked about when he said in the Lord's Prayer, pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. He said, Lord, that's what we want. We want to restore Eden. We want to have dominion with you over creation. We don't want to be ruled by our impulses and by the people around us. God, let us have your kingdom. What we already have in heaven, Lord, we want here on earth. Jesus says, this is what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. But there's good news. There's, I should say, better news. The the best news of all is this. You can already have that. You don't have to wait until you die. Because Jesus told us his kingdom, that kingdom that we pray for the coming of, is already in the world. He says it's like yeast hidden in a batch of dough. He says it's like a treasure hidden in a field. He says it's like a seed growing in the ground. And we don't see it until someday we will. But he says it's already in the world. That Jesus inaugurated his kingdom. And that we can have it now. See, ultimately what Revelation reminds us is that Christianity, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not about how what we need to do so we can go to heaven when we die. It's the good news that we can have heaven in us right now and when we die. 
It's not just about life after death. It's about life after life after death. Let's pray. Most holy and loving God, we thank you for this whole book uh, filled with symbols and mystery. But we thank you most of all for the news that it contains, the news that you are not ceding this property to the devil, not saying, okay, well, I'm going to come up with something different. And in the meantime, you can crash up here in heaven. But instead, Lord, you are regaining control of your creation, that you sent Jesus not to cede territory to the devil, but to defeat him and to cast him into the lake of fire. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in us. Uh, we can't we can't perceive your kingdom working in us, but Jesus told us that it is there, and he told us to watch for it. So, Lord, help us to see. Give us eyes of faith that we can see your kingdom um, as it begins to dawn here in this world, even now. We pray all these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.